listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to see you all here again this morning. As we've been journeying through the, the book of James, the theme that's undergirded or embedded in every aspect of our time together as we've walked through James is this idea that comes through James 1 of lacking nothing. And so what we've looked at is we've seen every aspect of of aspects of our lives and our conduct and how we we just functionally work in this life. There's there's an awareness of of enormous amounts of aspects of of how we think and how we feel where we, we do feel like there's a gap, that we are lacking many things. And, and the goal of, of James is to communicate to us that in the gospel, through the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his rescuing, transforming grace, that we are supplied supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in those places where we feel like we lack with the truth of who Christ calls us to be and the empowerment of his work in our life. Jim, the chairman of our board, did a skillful job, masterful job last week, just dealing with a very difficult subject where I think we become progressively aware that we do feel like we lack. And that place is conflict, relational friction, destructive conflict, if you will. So let me reintroduce you to uh, the hypothetical individual that Jim talked about last week, Alan. If you weren't here with us, Alan was this hypothetical individual that was a vice president of a construction company, married, kids, good, good guy, loved Jesus, in the process of actively involved in church. Him and his wife were now in the process of teaching some Sunday school classes. And, you know, he would come home from work and he has a, a couple of kids and they would be doing their homework or have not done their homework. And and Alan would find himself very agitated and angry that his children would not be doing the very thing that he asked them to do. And the conflict, the anger, the frustration would surface in many different ways. Some, many times he would raise his voice. Other times he would pound his fist against the table just trying to get the children's attention as to the importance of what he's trying to do. And after that, even as he would at times maybe treat his wife poorly in the midst of this anger that would take over and just consume his ability to to function with the people that he deeply loved, he would feel terrible. He was a guy who wanted to change and he would even pray about the fact that anger had ignited in his life and and takes over his ability to, to see clearly. And he wants to figure out how to be different and yet there are times where it feels like there are just so many triggers that incite or ignite this frustration that he feels inside. And so what, what, what Jim told us last week was that, that humility before God is the open door to God's love-changing grace and life-changing power. And so what that really means is, is that as, as even if you're thinking about Alan functioning in this world, what we're saying is that, that there's a place and a posture before God where we're communicating that, that we, we need his intervention in our life. All of the pseudo attempts that we make to try and change ourselves behaviorally never seem to really gain a lot of traction. One author once said that self-control is a depleting resource. 
meaning that you can say no for only so long to then you get to this point where it's just as built up that it just seeps out of everything. And so what we need is not behavioral modification. What we desire and what, what the, the truth of the gospel promises is life-changing grace. And so we come to this avenue of realizing, okay, if we're willing to admit that there's a place and spaces in our heart where we need that life-changing grace, then, then what's next? What, what are the other multiple layers as we look at what God might be doing in our midst? And that's where James takes us this morning is kind of the next step. So we've, we've looked inside or ideally the, the word itself has exposed areas of our heart where there's relational friction. And so the goal is to say we're looking at every part of our own hearts and we're saying when there's a relationship that I am in, whether it's a, a relationship with my loved ones, it's a relationship with my friends, it's a relationship with people in church, it's a relationship with, with the world outside, any time there is friction. What we're saying is that's a space that the Lord is working. But what ends up happening is we identify those areas where we need to be humble before God and, and, and ask his grace to begin to, to change us. One of the things that ends up happening is that the places that need to be changed is where God is going to have James take us next. And there are two spaces that become the anchor points, if you will, where God addresses and gives us even a bit of a litmus test as to how that change is happening. And here are the two. One is how we see other people, especially how we see those who have wounded us. And secondly, what we see our future to be. So the sense that, that James gave us last week is that the reason why there's conflict is because we identify that there are unmet needs. We have things we want that we're not getting. And there's a, there's a selfishness that takes place inside of us where we're saying, I see clearly what my needs are and those needs aren't getting met. And so because of that, I need to find a way to make those things happen. Think of Alan and his kids. He has good intentions. His intentions are that his kids put themselves in a position where they're working hard so that they can achieve the very things that they want. That's not bad in and of itself. But Alan has made a shift. <laughs> and that shift is that he has then made an analysis of their motives as to why they're not doing what he says they should do. My kids are lazy, disrespectful. They're not doing the things that they should be doing, and I've asked them to do it time and time and time and time again. And so something's got to change, and I'm going to change it. <laughs> That's the course of where James takes us next. We're going to be in James 4, and we're going to look at it in two sections, first 11 and 12, and then 13 through 17. And so what, what we really get here is this, this sense that that part of the reason for conflict is unmet appetites, and the second reason for conflict is untethered hope. And what I, what I mean by that is that I think if we looked at Alan's heart, his hope and desire for his kids, we would all say would be great. They're going to be healthy and uh, contributing to society. They're going to be educated and growing. They're going to know what discipline looks like, and they're going to be willing to work hard. They're going to be active members of the church, and they're going to be following God with their lives, but they, 
they have to do these things now, so I gotta put some framework in their life to make sure that they do what they need to do. And then when those things don't get done, instantly he begins to think and see that his kids are somehow in some way motivated by some defiance or laziness or some analysis of their motives and character that then only ignites the anger and frustration more. I mean, we've all seen it, right? We zeroed in on and realized that conflict happens because our appetites are unmet. And so James says, we want what we don't get. We want good kids with good grades. We want a happy marriage. We want joyful friendships that are encouraging and life-giving. We want financial security. We want health. All of those things in and of themselves aren't bad. But then what happens when it doesn't look like that version of life we're getting? What goes on inside of us? And so this is the next layer down as, as James begins to cultivate a sense of where we need this life-changing grace to work. So if you'll look with me, if you will, James chapter four, and we're gonna look at verses 11 and 12 briefly. He moves the conversation, like I said, away from just, okay, I have these appetites, I have these things that I want, and I'm not getting, and so there's a level of frustration and anger because what I've done is I've amplified my desires as though my desires in and of themselves are righteous and clean and good before God. And all of those that aren't meeting those desires are obviously bad and terrible and doing things that are against what God should be doing. And so now he moves it to how we view those who are a part of the destructive conflict. We're looking now at the other side of the people that we have felt wounded by. And, and he's gonna drive down really deep into the next response. Our response to how we see those people is really on the anvil of our hearts this morning. Look what he says in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? <laughs> is not gonna be popular this morning by any stretch because what, what he ends up doing is he, he dives down deeper and now he's, he's gazing into the heart of our response to how we've analyzed the other person's motives about what's happened in the midst of this destructive conflict. And he says, your natural fleshly response, your human nature is to create a version of this individual that makes them essentially almost to be the worst version of themselves and only sees the individual that's hurt you in the way that they hurt you and doesn't see them holistically. And so we're able to tear down and speak evil to one another and label someone else that's hurt us because of the wound that they've done to us. It happens all the time, right? Whether we speak it or not, whether it's in the midst of friendships or relationships or people in the church, we hear these conversations regularly. Well, this person said this, and they said it because they're immature and unfaithful. They don't see everything, and so there's something wrong with them. It's a fight in a marriage, <laughs> and the 
conversation begins to degenerate to the place where the conversation is just about how, how the worst version of the other person is the only type of who you're interacting with. They do this because they always do this. That's the language of destructive conflict. This person always. They never. Those pejorative conversations are exactly what incite the conflict that exists. And so when we are unable to see one another accurately and only seeing the version of the individual that hurt us, James has something to say. And here it is. Destructive conflict blinds us to reality. Destructive conflict blinds us to reality. Now, you've heard it said before that there are people who have blind rage, right? Just a road rage incident where all they see is this situation that has taken place and they are so frustrated they can't see anything else beyond the very situation that took place. But I think in any type of conflict that exists, the greatest challenge that faces us, an, an obstacle to restoration and reconciliation that the Lord is providing for us, is to ask ourselves the question, do we really see them accurately? Because the version of the person that we see that hurt us is certainly only a version. And it's not to say that the hurt is untrue or not valuable or not significant. It's to say it's not complete. And often as we deal with destructive conflict amongst one another, we are dealing with an incomplete version of the person that we're angry with. We don't see fully who they are and what they've done. We only see the headlines and don't understand the story of what's taken place. You and I have been hurt. We will be hurt again. But humility before God pushes us to the place where we realize one fundamental truth. Every person that you interact with, every person you see, believer or non-believer across the globe, every person that comes across your path is broken. There's some level of challenge or sin or, or difficulty that they're facing. And you're encountering that person not from a place where you are perfect or righteous. <laughs> you're broken too, and so am I. And so what do you have when two broken individuals come to deal with conflict? Well, in and of themselves, what ends up happening is more brokenness. <laughs> More frustration, we dig our heels in. But, but when it's a gospel-directed, Christ-directed approach, what we're saying is that the, the way in which reconciliation can occur is not to demonize the other person on the other end, but to say that individual needs as much life-changing grace as I do. Do we encounter relationships from that standpoint? Do you and I start dealing with relational destructive conflict as those individuals who are so certain that they need rescue and life-transforming grace, that they need to appropriate first the work of Christ in their own life as they engage into the brokenness of another. Are you aware that my sin is as great as the sin that has been done to me? Are we as aware that the challenges that exist and the story that's being written is one that absolutely deeply needs the supernatural grace of Jesus Christ to move forward whatsoever? In the flesh, brokenness continues to breed brokenness. But in the spirit, the story of what God can do in the midst of the most miraculous things that can happen in terms of reconciliation and restoration of fractured relationship come with the promise that life 
changing grace is as much of a need for us as it, in for, as it is for anyone else who's wounded us. And so let me just give you some criteria. If we're in the midst of a relationship that we've been hurt by and our response is to distance ourselves from that relationship, that there's a desire not to have restoration take place, that we would rather deal and, and, and live in a narrative where we have an incomplete version of the person that hurt us and stay away from looking for reconciliation, there's a place that God is descending and dispensing his life-changing grace on your life. He's going to move us. And James is talking to brothers and sisters, to, to believers who have met those challenges. And we can never be responsible for someone else's response to our desire to move towards God's life-changing grace in that relationship. But if there's an unwillingness to move, there's a place where the Lord is calling us to consider where he's moving us in the power of his spirit. Destructive conflict blinds us to reality. So, we only see the person that hurt us, not the person as a whole. The gospel compels us to leave unscripted space for change. That it's not just that the other person needs to change for reconciliation, but I need change too. I was talking with someone this last week, and one of the realities that they had come to in God's grace as they were working through some conflict in the context of relationships that they had, the awareness popped on and realized that they were the one that was the offender, even though they never realized it. They only thought that they were the one that carried the offense. God does that by giving us an awareness of his work. There's a place in India, kind of in the most rainy portion of it, that's known as one of the most rainy portions in the world. Uh, in, uh, in a normal, typical season, there are 82 feet of rain a year. So you have what would normally be creek beds that become raging rivers during monsoon season. And the difficulty is that there are villages that are dispersed through this kind of rain forest. But when the rainy season comes, most of these villages are totally cut off from one another. And so the villagers have tried and attempted through the course of generations to figure out how to bridge the gap between one village to another. They can't really build bridges because the rain is so severe that it erodes anything that they attempt to build. But what they found out generations ago is that there's this thing uh, called strangler trees that, that grow on the sides of rivers. And they have roots that make their way and grow in a lot of different various ways. And if they're able to, to plant a tree on one side and plant a tree on another side and then in the process connect those roots, they have what they call living bridges. There's a picture up on the screen of one and these are trees that have grown over and it takes more than a generation for these things to be, to, to, to build themselves essentially. And so they, they care for the roots, they take care of those things. But the reason why it works is because the, the trees are so deeply rooted and they're so used to the, the wet and rainy seasons that they're, they're actually able to bridge the gap as they're growing closer together. And so in the process of this place in India, they're able to walk through these villages even during monsoon and the, the torrents and these raging rivers because... 
these two trees have, have grown together through the course of generations and made what we would call living bridges. Now, those trees are still alive. The roots are still growing. The, the, the bridge progressively gets stronger every year. Let me suggest to you this morning that that's where, that's where James takes us next. So when we think about destructive conflict and relational friction, what ends up happening is we become aware that often our flesh would love to demonize the other person. We only see the part that's wounded us, but we don't see the person holistically. So it's difficult to dispense grace and also even more difficult to be aware that we need grace to dispense grace. But next he moves us to this place of untethered hope. There's a, a sense in which we have a version of what we would like life to look like. Do you not? And please don't hear me. I'm not suggesting that we don't have goals and dreams and desires. But what I'm suggesting is that you and I become so convinced of the version of life that we desire that when that version doesn't take place, so many things begin to be dismantled. And so our hope becomes about a version of life that we see versus the real present work that God is doing. We all have dreams, we all have desires, we have hopes for relationships, we have hopes for the future, we have plans, we're trying to steward these things and, and think about life as a whole, but at the end of the day, James is gonna tell us something very significant about how we need Christ to meet us in this moment. Look with me, if you will, in James chapter four, we're gonna be in verse 13. <laughs> and I love how he starts this. It's almost like this, I mean, I wouldn't say lecture, but he uses this words. he's like, come now. He's like, come on, man. Like, just, just here's where we need to really plant our lives and begin to understand more fully about how we understand what God is doing. So he says in verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? That's the fundamental question. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Again, I don't think James is writing this to be popular. <laughs> He's communicating about a reality in our heart where we understand areas that we live in the land of lack and how the gospel helps us understand that we lack nothing in Christ and what that means. And so when he moves us to this place, let me suggest to you this morning that we often plan life around a world that doesn't exist. Let me explain. If it's true, we often plan life around a world that doesn't exist. Let me just ask you, this morning to consider, and you don't have to confess it out loud, but I would love for you to consider what the question really is, is what in your life has the greatest grip on your emotions? What, what's the thing that is the rudder for your heart that, that takes over, should that thing happen, what begins to be all-consuming? Even if you think about it, it becomes something that as though there's this veil that just shrouds your entire life as you think about that situation. Let me give you some examples just so that we can be very clear. Let's say as a parent, you find yourself absolutely 
anxiously overwhelmed by your children's health and future. You worry about the day-to-day reality of their life and you are so convinced that if you could do something and that you would do anything to make sure that the version of their life that you have in your mind is accomplished, you do anything to, to make it happen. Begin to control environments and manage situations. Think about it in the context of a husband and wife. You have a version of your spouse that you want. And when that version doesn't play out the way that you expect it to, then what ends up happening? You begin, I begin, to start to cut and shift and make sure the person is aware that the version that they're living is not the version that you want. And so you make them aware of where they need to change. That always works out awesome for me every time. But we have these things where we think about the future and we're living in a world and making decisions based on a world that doesn't even exist. You and I have dreams about retirement in the future, finishing college and accomplishing all of these tasks, being very successful in our job. And then what happens? A a recession, a cancer diagnosis, a challenge in the midst of life that you could have not predicted, the death of a loved one. Life continues to impinge in so many different ways that there's just this uncertainty that so much of life that we're living is unplanned for by us. We don't know what to do with it. And so what does James say? Well, he said there's a couple of different ways that we approach that reality. One is sheer arrogance, which is what he says in the text. Ha, you say that you're going to go do this and make all this money and live this life. And really, it's just generated and governed by your own desires, which is what he's been addressing in chapter four the whole time. Your desires are untethered to the gospel and they begin to dictate all of the things that you want to do. How arrogant is it for you to say or for me to say, this is what I'm gonna do with my life and this is what my life is gonna look like and then I have no idea all of the things that I'm gonna encounter and so I become so fixated and I have tunnel vision about what I want life to look like that what's the biggest casualty? Well, I make it about myself and I miss the daily goodness and provision of God found in Christ. I begin to be blind to the fact that the version isn't looking the way that I want it to look, and I miss the fact that Christ's version is infinitely better. (laughs) I make it about my own desires and my own accomplishments and achievements, and I miss the daily reality that everything that I've been given, I've been given to by God himself. As parents, we're stewards of our kids. They're his before they're ours. Spouse is a gift from the Lord. Our jobs are gifts of God's provision. The places that we're at at school are God's gift for us to steward the things that he has before us. But consistently and chronically throughout all of scripture, what does the Bible tell us? You look at the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites in the book of Exodus. And he promised that he would take them to the promised land. They had this version of how quickly they would get there. He parts the Red Sea. They see this amazing miracle of the enemies of the people of God being washed out and wiped out all in one fell swoop. They get to the other side and they're like, man, we're in. It's a life of ease, breeze, and comfort, baby. We are good to go. And then complaining starts. And I know we were slaved and beaten all the time, but the cucumbers were really good back there, right? It's better food. And so now they begin to look at God and say, you know, you're not as good as I thought you were because they had a version of what they wanted life to look like. And how does God deal with that? 
How does God deal with our hearts when the version of what we want isn't what we're getting? I'll tell you. Daily bread and new mercies. It's every day the reality of God's constant gracious provision to love us where we are, draw us to himself, and continue to remind us that he is our provision. We are lacking nothing, not because we can figure out where we can find all of our needs supplied, but because all of our needs are supplied in Jesus. He is the source of our hope. He's the version of our future that we're longing towards. The things that I've learned most in my life have come through unplanned, difficult, challenging situations that I would have never signed up for, ever. But it's because of the gracious, shaping, transforming work of Jesus Christ and his rescuing grace in my life that he allows those places to be shaping places, not just defining places. I'm defined by Jesus and I'm shaped by his grace. Circumstances don't define me. Relationships don't define me. Jesus defines me. So arrogance is one approach. But I, wanna, I want us to just consider the flip side of the other reality. If arrogance of saying, well, I'm just gonna do this and, and down the road, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live there a year, I'm gonna make a profit and, and here's the version of my life that exists and I'm gonna go make it happen. And, and sure enough, you, you try and whatever happens, happens. But I think on the other side, when we live in a world that doesn't really exist, I would suggest comes from the level of anxiety. I think anxiety has its source in part in a place where we are concerned about a world that doesn't exist. We're concerned about a future that might or might not happen. We're captivated by the sense that I need to do X, Y, and Z in order to prevent A, B, and C from happening. And so our lives become consumed with this sense of, if I could just be different and just make the right decisions and just do the right thing, then the worst case scenario won't happen. And so our lives become consumed and the anxiousness begins to mount because we're concerned that somehow in some way we're gonna have to walk through the worst version of life that we can imagine. And in that moment, James has something to say to us as well. That world, world, that's awesome, right? I became Texan just in that moment, right? I got my twang together and everything's on. It took me seven years, but I'm there. The world, that world doesn't exist. But Jesus does. The sufficiency of his grace is all we need for any moment. Here's the truth that I've had to wrestle with regularly. God isn't trusting my capabilities to perform his perfect plan. He's not asking me to figure out and muster up enough strength to walk through the things that I need to walk through and do what I need to do. But you know, this isn't new to James. Proverbs tells us the same thing. Proverbs 69, if we can put that up on the screen. Here's what it says. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. What does that mean? It means that you and I are a part of trying to figure out where the Lord is calling us, and we have a version of what that looks like. And that's, that's good. It's not, I'm not suggesting that we don't plan, that we don't have goals and desires and thoughts and a future that we're hoping to, to get towards. But what I'm saying is, 
walking out that future is directed by Christ himself, that God is moving us. And the version that we thought we were looking for might not actually be the version that God is, is, is carrying through. So he's the one that's directing our steps. Proverbs 19.21 says something similar. Many, it says, are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. How amazingly comforting is that? Like, I think what James is getting through is that at times, some of the greatest obstacles to receiving the life-transforming, rescuing grace of Jesus is actually ourselves. That, that we stand in the way of allowing the work of God to be the work of God in our life and trust his sovereign care. Matthew 11, right? All who come to me who were weary and heavy laden. Anyone felt like that? Like that's like a universal analysis. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm freaking beat up. I'm tired. I'm exhausted from life. When is it gonna end? He says, all who come, all come to me who are weary and heavy laden. What does he say? Give you rest, Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, right? There's a sense in which that relationship that Christ is drawing us to is one in which he is fully and completely in control. And I know if you're anything like me, what ends up happening is we tend to be the ones that want to be in control. Whether it's from arrogance or anxiety, both of those versions are versions of us attempting to control our lives and worry that it's not happening or worry that we have to make it happen. And the cross stands at the crux of both of those spectrums of emotions and says the very thing that Jesus says, come to me, all you who worry, because you'll be exhausted here when everything is just captivated by anxiety and uncertainty about what the future holds, or you're just so certain that you've got your life together that you are boastful about what you're gonna do with your life. And both of those versions need to turn their gaze to the cross and realize that in Christ, we are lacking nothing. Our confidence is in Christ, not in our version of tomorrow. Our confidence is in Christ, not in our version of tomorrow. There is not one of you here that would have anticipated the suffering that you've encountered, the relational pain that you've experienced, you would have never written the narrative or written the script of what your life was going to encounter every day that you were walking it out. And yet, as you look back, most of us would say, you know, in that moment, the sweet grace of Jesus provided for me in a way that I never anticipated. It hasn't quite fixed what I was hoping would be fixed. But in the flood of my life, in the diagnoses that came in my life, in the relational friction that I've experienced, in the hurt and pain and suffering that I've walked through, Jesus was enough. I, 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 I felt like I lacked because I couldn't fix what I wanted fixed. But in Christ, I lacked nothing because his perfect plans were being carried out for my good and his glory. So let me suggest to you this morning that the rescuing nature of God, the rescuing nature of the gospel is God's will. Like that is the place and the space that the Lord is working and generating currently right now in the midst of our lives. He is 
changing us and transforming us. And so in the unpredictability and the relational friction that we've encountered, the hope and the desire is just where Jesus is calling us to, to press in and to trust him. Richard Baxter says it this way on his book on hypocrisy. Um, I read it probably because I need it. But here's what he says. Man always knows his life will shortly cease, yet madly lives as if he knew it not. <laughs> Let me say it again. Man always knows his life will shortly cease. That's what James says. It's just a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But yet we madly live as if we knew it not. Henry Nouwen said it this way. I often think a life is like a day. It goes by so fast. And if I'm so careless with my days, how can I be careful with my life? I know that somehow I have not fully come to believe that urgent things can wait while I attend to what is truly important. It finally boils down to a question uh, of deep and strong conviction. Only I am truly convinced that preparing the heart is more important than preparing the Christmas tree. I will be a lot less frustrated at the end of the day. Preparing the heart more than trying to figure out all the details of life, I will be a lot less frustrated at the end of the day. So let me just offer you two things this morning. A caution, if you will, and a corrective. Here's the caution. Beware of assuming that you see clearly. And I don't say you like I see clearly. I mean, me too. Like, be, Beware of assuming that we see with utter accuracy the situations around us the hurt that we've incurred the injustice that we felt the frustration that mounts inside the labeling of another person who's not doing what we want them to do beware James would tell us that it's likely we don't see the full picture of what's going on inside so don't speak evil against one another because it assumes that you can see clearly about the struggle in the other person's heart. You have assumed why they've done what they've done. And in the process then, made decisions and thoughts and perspectives as to why they've done what they've done. And you and I have assumed motives as to those things. And then what we've done is developed a version of this individual that isn't complete. But it's a whole lot easier to deal with that version than the version of who that person truly is. Beware would be the caution. And here's the corrective. Every moment in life, every wound inflicted, every fearful thought, every unanticipated disruption, and every diagnosis needs gospel rescue. Every encounter and every moment of life in which we draw breath is a moment of God dispensing his life-changing grace in our life as the source of our hope and the nourishment of our souls. We will always feed our heart and nourish our lives on something. And James is compelling us and pleading with us, nourish our sense, nourish our lives on the life-transforming, rescuing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the only one that truly nourishes 
If it's trying to nourish ourselves on the version of the future that we want or the version of the person that hurt us or whatever the case may be, we find ourselves nourishing ourselves based on our own broken perspective. But if we nourish ourselves on the rescuing, transforming power of God's grace, we come to the realization that both we need rescue and those who have been hurting us need rescue And it changes how we see those around us. And we can have nothing but hope for what the future has based on the grace of God as he leads us and walks us through this life. Let's pray together this morning.